This episode of Country Queer Spotlight is brought to you by New West Records. Pick up a copy of the new Jamie Wyatt album, Neon Cross. Available now at jamiewyatt.com. That's J-A-I-M-E-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. Ride me cowboy Till the cows have come home Till the cows, till the cows come home Look deep in my eyes Put your hands on my thighs And ride, ride, ride Saddle up, cowpokes, and get ready to hit the trail with Country Queer Spotlight the podcast that introduces you to rising LGBTQ stars on the country scene. Join your host, Rachel Coles, as she chats with her guests about their music, their background, their influences, and more. Let's ride. Ride me, cowboy, till the cows come home. Till the cows, till the cows come home. Deep in my eyes, put your hands on my thighs. Howdy, cowpokes, and welcome to Country Queer Spotlight. This time around, we are chatting with Jamie Harris. Jamie is a country queer favorite, and you're about to find out why. Harris, who came up in the legendary Texas songwriting scene, has the perfect country music voice and a sense of adventure with her music. Jamie and I recorded this interview back in August, as you'll figure out shortly. Just as a note, in the first few minutes, we talk about death and depression. Uh, I know it's uh, off to kind of like a more serious start, but we lift up the mood from there. Overall, though, I hope that this interview is healing for everyone who listens to it. Before we begin the interview, let's listen to some of Jamie's tunes. We're going to kick it off with Hurts As Good As It Feels from her debut solo album, Red Rescue. Don't 
Well, JB, welcome to uh, Queer Country Spotlight, uh, provided by Country Queer. We're so happy to have you. Uh, you are a favorite on the Country Queer website, so oh, I'm looking forward you. to getting a chance to talk to you. Yeah, I'm excited to treat you right now. Um, you know, it's been, I don't know, it's so up and down in the pandemic, honestly. Um, in the beginning, you know, I just took like a month off and colored and coloring books and like caught up on television I hadn't seen in a long time. And I was really good about writing songs, being creative. And then we figured out how to kind of move things online, which has been good in a way. But, um, you know, just this week we had a, there's a guy that I knew not well, but I had met him at a songwriter workshop and he took his own life. And of course, we lost Justin Townsend last night, and we don't know the conditions of um, how he passed. But it just seems like we're losing so many people, obviously to the virus, but also, um, you know, I'm in recovery. I've been in recovery for a little over six years, and I suffer from depression. And it seems like so many people that are on the edge are like falling off of the edge. You know what I mean? So I feel grateful to be, you know, working. I'm grateful to be talking to you, to be seeing another face <laughs> today. It helps so much. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be chatting with new people myself. The world suddenly feels really small. Right. Uh, but also just really unbounded because it's all on the internet now. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely want to talk a little bit about that theme of depression. I'm really sorry to hear about your friend. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's it's tough. Um, I wish I had something more profound to say <laughs> as well. You know, it's totally, yeah. it's fine. It's, it's yeah. okay. There's no graceful you know transition, what? so let's just do that. You know, I, am, just, I just realized, I was like, you probably Sorry. didn't expect me to come out right out no, of no, the no. game and be like, yeah. I'm fine. Actually, no, things are really dark and scary right now. And, yeah, of course. Um, I think artists and creative people feel it so deeply. So I apologize for coming out of the gate with just like a lot of intense feelings and no, a very heavy subject. Like I said, uh, I do have a couple questions lined up, so we'll get back to that. Great. Um, um, so I was just wondering, uh, how'd you get your start musically? I've read that you've worked with your dad and he sort of introduced you. Yeah, when I was a kid, there was this Emmylou Harris Christmas song called Light of the Stable. Uh, Neil Young and Dolly Parton actually sang, sang background vocals on that track. And when I was five, I was just mesmerized by that track and I kept putting it on repeat and repeat and repeat. And I had asked my parents um, for a Pegasus for Christmas, like a flying horse. And they were asking me if there was anything else in the world I wanted, and I wasn't budging from my Pegasus quest. And so they thought that maybe because I was listening to this Emmylou Harris song over and over again that I might be interested in music. And so that's how I got my first guitar. And then I played cover songs. You know, I grew up in a really small town, or not a really small town. I just grew up in a small town in Texas that's a lot bigger now outside of Waco. And during that time, there was no public radio station and there was no independent record store. So all of the music that I got that wasn't coming from my dad was pretty much from mainstream radio or from television. And so I was became like obsessed with 90s country at the time. Of course, like, you know, uh, Jody Messina was probably my ultimate favorite when it came to the 90s country stuff. But um, that was my jam. And so that was kind of my role for a while. And then my dad took me to the first Austin City Limits Music Festival. And that's when I discovered like James McMurtry and I finally got to see Emmylou Harris play and Patty Griffin and Buddy and Julie Miller. And Julie had spent a lot of time in Waco. So there was something 
really inspiring about seeing someone that was living in the town that I was or had come from the town that I was that was actually doing this and writing these incredible songs and it was explained to me she'd written a song on the Wrecking Ball album and so I kind of got really deep into I guess at that time um, was alt country or whatever No Depression was writing about I was interested in listening to and that's when I began writing songs and playing them which I did with my dad for about four years. And you were probably what like 10 or 11 around that time? Uh, I started playing cover songs. My dad mm-hmm. put himself through college and law school by playing in a cover band. So they'd play those cool. four hour sets and I would play mm-hmm. cover songs in the in-between. And sometimes I would get kicked out. And if I got kicked out, then there was a woman named Beth Petrick who would drive the getaway car. And so mm-hmm. for every set I didn't get to play, she would buy me a CD. Um, so that was a pretty good trade off for me. <laughs> but I started playing with my dad when I was about 14 after I'd been writing okay. for about a year. Wow. That's so cool. I mean, I think that just speaks to the importance of representation, where there's something you feel really excited about, and then you feel seen within there. Uh, I mean, I guess it doesn't need to be said for anyone listening to uh, Queer Country Spotlight, but, you know, it really can make a huge difference in somebody's life. Absolutely. Uh, I was also wondering if you were... um, trained like either in the church or somewhere else because when i listen to forever i mean we'll listen to it after we hear your answer but i mean that feels almost operatic oh thanks for saying that yeah Yeah. you know i i did grow up singing in the church i mean anywhere where i could sing i wanted to sing absolutely i was involved in that and i was in choir for a long time in middle school and high school and I'd actually taken extra courses so I could get into this very special choir my junior and senior year and I was like so sure I was gonna make it and I auditioned my junior year and I didn't make it and it was so devastating to me Um, and so I decided you know in true addict fashion just to quit it all I was like I'm not doing choir anymore (laughs) so I just quit and I was like I guess I'll just gig more and that's what I did when I was 16 um, so yeah, it was indefinitely, I mean, I grew up in the Baptist church, so obviously singing, you know, with the hymnals is a big deal in the Baptist church in Texas. And so I grew up in that way, singing in the church. Um, but that song forever, it's interesting that you say that I wrote that song with the producer of the record, Craig Ross, who's done a lot of work with Patty Griffin and Spoon. And he brought the music to me and the melody. And it was one of the only songs that I written as a research song. Um, Mm -hmm. I was spending some more time in Oklahoma and I also had a friend and a mentor um, in Oklahoma or from Oklahoma that was in the process of passing away from cancer. And when Craig presented this melody for me, I was just like, man, something about this. I want to write a song about Oklahoma because it kind of sounded like this, you know, timeless thing floating across the prairies of Oklahoma. And so I started looking up and I found that this the state flower of Oklahoma is this flower that turns darker at a certain time of the year and that's kind of where I pulled a lot of the imagery for that song from. What do you mean by a research song? Yeah so a lot of times um, for me when I write a song I'm kind of writing it more on my own experience where as a writer like maybe David Olney was huge into research songs. Um, He Mm -hmm. would go into the library and sit for hours and hours and just read about things and um, if something stuck out to him he would write about it or just sometimes you know you have to go down the rabbit hole like for 
the songwriters out there, there's this thing called the Hemingway theory, where what the listener gets is like the top of the, or sorry, Hemingway came up with this thing called the iceberg theory. So the listener gets like the top of the iceberg, but you as the writer have to know everything about your characters and what you're writing about, everything under the iceberg, like who they love, what they ate for breakfast, where do they shop, what kind of clothes do they wear, like what are their struggles, you know, and only a little bit makes it into the song. Um, but for a research song, I, w- I was looking, it's more like you're actually researching a particular topic. You know, if someone was to write a historical song, you want to know, like, what was the name of a store that would be on the road of blah, 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 <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Red Rescue, I've noticed, deals a lot with depression head on. Uh, going back to what we were speaking about earlier, uh, my grandma always used to say, don't ask a question if you don't already know the answer ahead of time. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, but I feel like this is an album where if I'd listened to it a couple of years ago when I was experiencing really intense depression, um, it kind of might have made me stay there. I mean, I feel like listening to it now, I it helps me access that time much better than even if I were to go back and read, you know, my own diaries. So thank you for that. Oh, um, interesting. I think it can give me a new perspective. Um, so if you're feeling super depressed right now, I would sort of just like send you into that album with like, <laughs> just, uh, just know that it might intensify the way you're feeling in a good way. Um, but I feel like what's really special about this album is that each song approaches this theme from a lot of different angles where it just doesn't feel like it's something you're dwelling on. It feels like you're kind of finding new facets, uh, talking about depression or, uh, the things in your life that led you to feel that way. Um, and I was wondering, uh, about your songwriting process, since you already said it sounds like most of your songs are autobiographical and how do you let them sort of grow from your experiences? Yeah, well, I will tell you that my songwriting process is always changing. It's always evolving. Um, And it's changed a lot since this record came out. But, you know, my story was I had never put out a record. I've been playing since I was 14 years old. This record came out when I was 28. I started making it when I was 26, I think. Yeah, it was like the two days after my 26th birthday. So I spent a lot of time writing these songs. Um, some of them were actually products of a song game where uh, you're in a group email with other songwriters and you're given a prompt and then you turn in a song, like a voice memo of that song by the end of the week. Um, and so definitely some of those songs came from that experience. But other ones, I, I remember there's a song on there called Snow White Knuckles, which I wrote very soon after I got out of jail, about three months after I got out of jail and had been sober. And I worked for a doctor for a long time. And he's kind of a rock and roll doctor. He looks like Dee Snider, but he wears a cowboy hat. <laughs> and, uh, he's a trip, but um, he's also a musician. And so there were always guitars in the office. And I remember I had this idea for a song and I sat in the office and I just wouldn't leave the office until I finished that song. I will say since the record has come out, I'm definitely more hardcore about my editing process. But the challenge of this record was to take all of these songs, most of which I had played with a seven-piece band in Austin. You know, they call it the live music capital of the world. You know, we were playing live gigs all the time there. And so we had really formed these songs with the band, and it was really fun. But as you can hear, still even a little bit on the record, like Hurts As Good As It Feels is kind of like a straight-up 
country song, or it's very close to a country song. And so I had all of these songs kind of sonically um, that didn't exactly fit together, which is why I really needed Craig. I needed a producer to help me see what songs would fit together on that record to make the story. And what I know now about it is like, I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. Like, and that's the miracle of songwriting is sometimes you write these songs and they are born before you as the songwriter or me as the songwriter is even fully aware of what I'm talking about or what I'm trying, like, or what's going on in my own life. Oftentimes when I step back, like, it's incredible that you said that because now that I think about it, it's like, man, I was like all over the place when I was writing these songs, you know? My life was mostly chaos. There wasn't a hardcore process. And that's probably what comes through is like, there's this sadness, there's this struggle in a lot of these songs because I was figuring out how to be a sober person in the world and to stay out of jail. And I was wrestling with all that stuff that people in early sobriety wrestle with. It also sounds like you really enjoy the process of collaboration. I feel like a lot of people sort of at least like to pretend that writing is locking yourself in a room and just sort of like (laughs) dragging the words out of you. But I'm sure we'll talk about it. Uh, in a couple of minutes, but I know you attend songwriting workshops. I know you have a lot of mentors within the Austin community. Um, do you feel like there's like a different side of your songwriting that comes out when you're working with somebody else compared to when you're working by yourself? Absolutely. Um, I a lot of my struggle too is I love singing harmonies. Well, I don't know if it's a struggle, but so I'm kind of split down <laughs> the middle. Like I could totally, and so I was just realizing as you know. I'm split down the middle in so many ways, but, um, but aren't we all? Aren't we all? Yes, exactly. So um, I I love being in a supportive role. So I love being a side person, being a harmony singer, um, and yeah, I I didn't really get into co-writing until my good friend Graham Weber invited me to be a part of this thing called the House of Songs. And the House of Songs pairs up songwriters from all over the world. Um, together to write. So there's a house in Austin, there's a house in Bentonville, Arkansas, and there's a house in Harlem. And so someone from like the UK will live in the Austin house. And then me being an Austin songwriter at the time, I would come in and write with that artist. And then every once in a while, like before Americana Fest or before Folk Alliance or before South by Southwest, about seven to 10 songwriters will live in a house altogether and write that whole week with different people. So I was actually really... Um, I was really fond and still am fond of collaborating musically. Like, I've had a pretty steady band for the past seven years, but I love being in other people's bands and experimenting with them. But writing was pretty personal to me. Um, And I was really afraid to let anyone into my process. So it wasn't until I got invited to kind of co-write in that House of Song setting and until I went to that my first songwriting workshop that I really understood the incredible value of bringing other people into your process because then you have another person's point of view with their whole set of life experiences. I think where it can be difficult and even, you know, my partner Mary Gaucher is an incredible songwriter and so I go to her and, you know, now and say, okay, there's a song I'm working on. I have some questions about it. And even though she is a total badass and far more accomplished than I am, there are some times when I just have to go, 
I appreciate that suggestion, but my gut is gonna say like, nope, I'm not gonna do that. But writing with other people is great. I mean, there's um, there's some silly songs I've written with people um, or even in, in workshops with kids, teenagers that I wouldn't have done. You know, I, I can have a tendency when I'm writing to take myself so seriously. Um, it's fun, like there's this guy I've written with named Johnny Gowdy, he's just a full on rock and roll guy. And that's like so fun to collaborate in that way because it's not stuff that I would put into my own songs. And also, I, um, there's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't do with my own voice that I can do with my voice that don't make it into my own song. Um, and I think part of it has to be with like one, you know, being a woman, it's a difficult thing to be a songwriter and to be a woman because it's really hard to be taken seriously. And I think I've shied away from using my voice because I don't want to be known as like a chick singer. You know what I mean? So. I have held back part of that because I want the words to be taken seriously. But an Irish guy who won The Voice in Ireland, he can sing the fuck out of a song, you know what I mean? So um, it allows me to explore things that I wouldn't in my own writing, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've noticed uh, with the album also is when I was listening to each of these songs, I could certainly hear you with an acoustic guitar you know, singing these, um, you know, in a small group, but Red Rescue has so many textures. Like, I think Creatures has, uh, might be a great example of this. It just has, like, this pop feel with the synthesizers, but there's also these, like, strains of Lucinda Williams uh, throughout the album, I feel. Um, so how do you approach building all these different textures into your music while staying honest to, like, the core of the lyrics? Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the people in my band. Like my, you know, I've have kind of this incredible band that came out of the misfits of Austin. You know, like my drummer is a huge Rush fan that also loves the Bee Gees. Um, my background singer loves Mavis Staples, and she brings that Mavis energy. You know, my guitar player is a Beatles fanatic. My um, my bass player is like all 80s music and pop 90s music. And so there are all these things that I love about music that are kind of embedded in these different members of my band. And no matter who I play with, whether it's the regular guys in my band or if I'm at a festival or if I'm working with a graphic designer, whatever it is, I choose to work with those people because I love what it is that they do. I love their sensibilities. And that, that is another thing that I love about collaboration that I've missed being on the road pretty much solo for the past couple years. So I like to hire someone and just say, do what it is that you do, because that's what I love. And then I think they have that confidence and that creative freedom that um, allows them to really put their heart into what they're playing. So a lot of that just comes from collaboration. And because... You know, I think with, I have mostly grown up with the internet during my life. I'm 30 years old, so I've have had access to all kinds of music, and I think that makes more of a melting pot. And you know, genre. Who cares? You talked about Lucinda Williams earlier. Um, I was feeling down about it recently, and like, should I stick to one thing? Should it sound like one thing? You know, and of course, the answer is just to be me and be whatever that is. And that's what Lucinda did: straight up country song, blues song, rock and roll, one after another, and they're all Lucinda. She's like the bar. Let's take a break and listen to Creatures from Red Rescue. Oh, isn't it strange? Isn't it strange how the night will change you? 
This episode of Country Queer Spotlight is brought to you by New West Records. The new Jamie White album, Neon Cross, is available now. In our interview with Jamie, Country Queer called Neon Cross a dreamy country masterpiece, and the advocate calls Jamie the new queer queen of outlaw country. Pick up a copy of Neon Cross at jamiewyatt.com. That's J-A-I-M-E-W-Y-A-T-T dot com.
You're listening to Country Queer Spotlight, the podcast that introduces you to rising LGBTQ stars on the country scene. You can find more queer country content and merch at countryqueer.com. Now, back to the show with your host, Rachel Colst. Yeah, it sounds like working with the producer really helped you focus a lot of those different um, influences as well. Yeah, totally. And the thing about Craig, like, I mean, all a lot of what you hear on that record is Craig. If you look at the credits, he played so much on this record. And he, we spent, I think, two years making the record. And it wasn't like I would get mixes and then live with them. It was like I would kind of go in with Craig and hear what he was thinking about. Um, like he would, he was like, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? I was like, wow, I didn't even know my songs could do these things. And we, we definitely came to a point where it all melded together for sure. But I love that he explored them and it gave me a confidence as a songwriter to know that, wow, these songs can be just performed in a folk room with an acoustic guitar, but they can also make sense in a bunch of different ways. Um, and that's a cool thing for a songwriter to know, because I think a song that is a good song can be sung and presented in any genre if it connects to the universal experience speaking of uh universal experiences since it is a country queer um if you feel comfortable uh talking about it, i was wondering what your coming out journey has been and um how you feel that's impacted you as a musician that is a really good question i you know, I haven't thought about it very much because I don't really, I didn't have like a big coming out moment. I remember when I was a kid, I thought I was a lesbian and then I was like, well, I guess I like guys too, kind of okay. <laughs> and then I just like was an independent person. I mean, sometimes people would ask me how I identify and I would say songwriter. Like, I think um, obviously it's a big part of my life, but it doesn't feel like the, I just think more about being a songwriter, I guess. But um, I was really private with a lot of the romantic relationships that I had in my life, whether they were with men or with women. And I think, um, a lot of that had to do with the fact that they weren't healthy relationships. Like just no one needed to know about them. I was probably in denial. I don't even know if some of them were relationships, you know, it was just like <laughs> a lot of BS I probably learned from sex in the city. That was like bad relationship news, you know, and my parents have been married since they were 20. They fell in love really early. And so you know, I didn't really talk to them a lot about dating, but it was just crazy, you know? So I've never just been public about any relationships, but since I've been in love with Mary, since we got together, I mean, I just like, I'm going to marry her. Like that is the person. Like when people talk about when you meet this person, you will know. I was like, sure, that's cool. Whatever. Like I thought I was just going to be by myself, like driving in a van or whatever Chris Farley did in that sketch, you know, like with Christina Applegate. But like, I, like that's my life. I'm just going to be in a van down by the river, like the crazy ants, like playing rock and roll. I think it was really hard for me to consider having a long-term serious relationship with anyone of any identification because it's just hard for me. I grew when I grew up, I was really heavy. And mm -hmm. I, after I quit drinking, I think I lost like 150 pounds. And so I always saw myself, you know, there wasn't this like Lizzo thing going on or even, even like Heather May, who's a great body positivity mm -hmm. person. Like 
None of that existed. It was the 90s. You know, it was like the skinniest you could be always. And so I always felt that I was really undesirable. And plus, I'm super awkward. Like music, which is why I turned to music, because it allowed me to connect. It allowed me to say things in a meaningful way and to be connected to other people in a way that I felt I couldn't do on my own with my speaking words. And so I think the, the farther I get in sobriety, I, I understand my worthiness a lot more. But it's it just was hard to accept that anyone actually really wanted to be with me in a meaningful way. Yep, I can relate to that one. Um, does that also connect with like the ways you present yourself as a musician? Because I've seen uh, both in your press photos, but and then also, of course, the cover to Red Rescue is extremely stylized. But when we're not uh, in lockdown, it seems to me like you try to cultivate a very specific look. Oh, it's interesting. Or have I misread that? Yeah, you know what? I just, um, I actually like to, I just like to look like a bunch of different things. You know, like I can be in a muscle tee and jeans and be fine. I can go to the grocery store in my Golden Girls pajama pants, you know, and be fine. And other days I just feel like I want to curl my hair and put on a dress. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, um, I was just going through some photos. There's a venue that I played at a lot in Austin that, of course, because of COVID has closed. Um, there are so many venues that are that we're losing right now. And I was going through this like evolution. It's almost like the revealing of Jamie, because in the beginning, I'm wearing these like giant glasses and a huge hat and everything on my body is covered. I'm just covered up. And then I stopped wearing the glasses, but I still had the hat. And then it's like I took the hat off. And then I don't know. Basically, the only style thing that I think I have is pretty common is I do like to wear a lot of black. But I also just, you know, I'm a crazy person. I just want to look how I feel that day. It's mm -hmm. not crazy. It's not crazy. It's <laughs> what everyone does okay. to some extent. <laughs> I think also just as an artist, as someone who's like seen publicly you know during normal times of course uh it makes sense to spend a lot of time cultivating or like styling yourself basically whether or not you yeah. do that I intentionally i will say the glasses turn into a thing like i have these mm -hmm. rose colored glasses that i wear all the time and the way that that happened was because i was really depressed and i had to go do something in north austin and there's this great vintage store that's next to an incredible record store so i just popped in for a second and I loved these glasses because I was so struggling with depression that it was really hard for me to make eye contact with people. It was really hard for me to like look up. And these glasses I felt like gave me a superpower where I was able to be in the world again um, with a little bit of a shield. And that was before I knew we were gonna call the record Red Rescue, that there was gonna be this huge red theme. Um, they, and, and they just kind of became a part of my deal. What's uh, the meaning behind the title? I know it's uh, one of the songs. Yeah, well, I thought about it for a while. And we, I didn't know what I wanted to call the record. Um, and I had this dream. I, was able, I started being able to visualize what the cover would look like. And one of my best friends is a photographer, Brandon Aguilar, who did the photography work for the record. And we were out at this place outside of Fredericksburg and he said, hey, he goes, I don't know if you've thought about what you're doing for the record, but I had this idea. And he 
proceeded to download the idea out of my brain, like the exact vision. Mm -hmm. And so when I can start to visualize things, I'm very slow to move. I'm like, I really want to know, I want my gut to be locked in super solid. And when I can start to visualize things, that what lets me know that I'm going in the right direction. And what I kind of thought about probably about a year after the record came out, um, because it was kind of hard for me to listen to for a while. One of the reasons being that my mentor who passed away sang on the record, Jimmy LaFave, and he sang on the title track. And what I realized is that as far as like Red Rescue, I mean, for a songwriter, even if you write the song from a perspective, from somebody else's perspective, of course your experiences weaved in their right. So for, for my you know, for me, I was like, well, Red Rescue is really like the only song on the record that isn't really about me. But of course, it's about me. <laughs> it ended up being about me in a way I wasn't even aware of until about a year ago. And I realized that um, in the last chorus, I sang, you know, how am I going to save you when that darkness lives in you too? And I'm thinking I'm talking to somebody else about their and about their darkness. And when are you going to wake up and see that that darkness is in you and you, you, know, you have to be the one to save yourself? And I realized that every other song on that record is a cry for me to have that understanding. Yeah. I mean, it has to go both ways. Yep. At a certain point, right? Uh, we, we mirror each other. Mm -hmm. This is a good time to listen to one of Jimmy LaFave's songs. Up next is Walk Away Renee from Austin Skyline.
which lets us into the title track from Jamie Harris's debut album, Red Rescue.
Most of the artists I interview are in Nashville or they're Nashville adjacent. So even I'm not there either, but I feel like I have a sense of what like the culture around music is like there. But how would you describe Austin? Because you've worked with Jimmy um, and Betty Sue, and it does feel like Texas has this whole entire cosmology of like country music that is really just its own world. Yeah, it is. I mean, it has its own chart. You know, um, 
Yeah, Austin just feels really collaborative. And I think a lot of it, I've thought about this a lot. And of course, it's like, you know, there's the Southern vibe, the hospitality. That's a huge part of it. But I think the other part of it is that for now, at least, we don't know how COVID is going to change this. But in a lot of towns, I mean, even Austin, there's a little bit of industry there. There's some boutique labels. um, There's a boutique... Uh, booking agency there now BMI just opened an office there but the industry isn't centralized there like it is in LA or Nashville or New York and so it's a great opportunity to develop and to play in front of crowds because there's a massive amount of venues to play I mean just the sheer number of venues in Austin you know we don't have to compete against each other to get gigs There are clubs that will host five different bands a night. So it's all about helping each other because we don't have that cutthroat industry thing um, bothering us and we don't have that just pressure to make sure that we have access to actually perform these gigs because there's just opportunity there. And I think like as far as the studios, I mean, there are, there are a lot, but everyone is really open about sharing what knowledge they have. And, oh, man, you want a background singer? I've been working with so-and-so. She's great. Why don't you hire her? It's very word of mouth, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, you know, I've, um, I moved to Nashville, but I haven't really been in Nashville since I've um, moved here. We've been on the road, and now I'm stuck in my house. So um, I haven't had that experience. But when I right before I moved to town, I went to D's, which I don't know if, if you've ever been to D's in Madison, but it's a really, really fun bar. And I met this guy, John Latham. And John Latham is has that incredible collaborative spirit. I think Aaron Lee Tashton has that collaborative spirit. Um, Nick Nace, there's this kind of whole group of guys that you know you can go over to their house and sit and play guitar till the sun comes up and they're all rooting for each other so I do think that spirit is in Nashville too yeah it almost seems like with like New Orleans you go there because you can make a living playing music and you're not trying to compete for any kind of like commercial or like national commercial Mm -hmm. recognition you just go for the love of it um that's my sense but to tie all these threads together, like collaboration, even the New Orleans connection, um, and like your journey as a queer person and a musician, um, your story about how you met Mary is super cute. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind retelling it for the podcast. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, I had some friends and family that and fans that raised the money for me to go to my first songwriting workshop which was hosted by Eliza Gilkison and Gretchen Peters and Mary Gaucher. And um, so I went to the workshop and that's where I met Mary. And on the second day, she put out a prompt for us to write a song based on the Emma Lazarus poem. And it's written on the Statue of Liberty. And I was able to oddly write a song in like two hours during the time we were given. During that time, Mary came into this room and she started talking to me about the work that she was doing with songwriting with soldiers and how she was writing with veterans. And I told her about how my whole deal is, you know, about criminal justice reform and how I wanted to write with people that were incarcerated. And we just had this long conversation. And my mentor, Jimmy LaFave, had just passed away two months before that. And so as she was leaving, she said, hey, you know, I know Jimmy's gone. I don't know if I'm the right person, but if you would 
if you need anyone to call, you know, I'm happy to step in and, and help you. And I was like, okay, thank you. You know, so um, that's how we met. And then we started kind of running into each other. I saw her at Americana Fest and I saw her like, you know, kind of um, all just at different places. And, um, and, th- and then we kind of stayed in touch because she really helped me get my record finished. And she would just call every once in a while very sporadically to check up on me. And on, I remember because it was March 7th, which is Towns Van Zandt's birthday. So we always do this hoot for Towns on his birthday at the Cactus Cafe in Austin. And there's not a list of when everyone's singing. It's just whenever Butch Hancock points at you and says, you want to get up there and play a song. So it's a little chaotic. And she had called me and my best friend Graham Weber was like, Mary Gaucher is calling you. And I was like, yeah, I know. He was like, no, no, no. Like you have to take that. Mary Gaucher is calling you. He was like, okay, sure. So, so I called her back and we were talking. And at the end of the conversation, she said, oh, you know what? Um, I, or I, I guess I said, I'm sorry, I have to go. I'm at like a part of this thing. And she was like, okay, sure. Um, I'm going on the road. So I probably, you know, can call you in a few weeks or something. And I was like, okay, sure. Bye-bye. Click. And then I don't know what it was, if it was like Cupid's arrow or something, but it was like this feeling came over me and I was like, oh, I don't want to wait weeks to talk to her. And I was like, oh no, I'm in love with Mary Gaucher. I was like, oh no, oh no. Like it just like came over me. Like I was struck by it. <laughs> and I was in Nashville a few weeks later. My friend Gretchen knew I was going to be there, and Mary um, was hosting a party at her house, so she invited me. And it also happened that it was Bobby Bear's 82nd birthday, and she was singing at the Opry with him. So she's like, do you want to go to the Opry with me? I was like, okay. And so we went to the Opry, and I wasn't sure if it was a date or not. And then she asked me if we want to go to dinner, and I was like, okay. And then nothing happened. She just dropped me in my car. And then you know, it was like the next day we went to a museum, and it was like, bye and I said bye I'm going to Texas where I live like forever goodbye and she's like goodbye later I was like oh no she doesn't love me you know I was like so worried about it and like terrified and anyway so (laughs) I was having this whole like meltdown and I was um I was in North Carolina singing on Wes Collins record which he's an incredible artist and just something about that record I was bawling I was just like crying and crying crying and we were um, coming back from the studio and I was looking up something in my Facebook messages, which I like never check. And I found all these messages from Jimmy, my mentor. And one of them was like really about, you know, following your heart and trusting like, you know, just that whole thing. And I was like, Oh my God. And of course, between the time I'd been in Nashville, Nashville and had gone home, I was like, don't look at her Instagram. Don't look at her. Like, don't look at anything, you know, just like erase it from your mind. And so I wasn't looking and I clicked out and I saw that a veteran that she wrote with was going to be performing with her in Buffalo the next week. And so I looked at my calendar and it was like these two days that I had off. It was like the day before the show and the day of the show. And I was like, oh my God, should I go to Buffalo? Should I just do it? This is crazy. And I that night looked and I found a $40 flight on Frontier Airlines from Austin to Buffalo. And I was like, if that isn't a sign from God, I was like, when does that ever happen? You know, I don't even think you can get a $40 flight from Austin to Buffalo in the pandemic. You know, it's like (laughs) crazy. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go. And, and then the whole deal was I wasn't going to text her until, you know, I got there. I was like, all this nerd, you know, and I opened my phone to text her and she had just texted me and she was like, Hey, what are you doing? Like, I thought about calling you. I'm off. And I came to Buffalo early and I was like, I'm in Buffalo. And she's what? And she, she didn't get it. She thought I was working. She didn't understand that I just like come. And I thought that 
And that's crazy. Like, I'm never someone to do that. You know, like, I'm never the person to make the first move. I just, I'm like, if I like somebody, I like to disappear. Like, I just, as you've heard before, I'm horrible at this stuff. So I'm just like, no, I can't do this. And um, so, yeah, so she, I thought that she was totally not into me at all. And then we were just going to be friends. And it turns out that she fell in love with me after I played that song at the workshop. And she kissed me that night. And we've been together ever Mm -hmm. since, like, together ever since. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I say that's with love, but that's like the gayest story. I've I ever know heard. it's okay. I know <laughs> in the best way possible. Yeah. I mean, that really is like the the true like experience, right? Where you hang out with somebody you think is like really cool and you have a crush on, and then you have no idea if it was like a date or not. In her mind, was it a date? Do you know that now? <laughs> she told me yes, it was. You know what blows my mind about it is where all my family came to. Yeah the 30A Songwriters Festival. I forgot I had seen her in, in uh, January at the 30A Songwriter Festival. I was playing and she was playing. And there's this brief moment where I was like, oh, hey, Mary, th- these are my parents. And she's like, oh, hi, you know, I got to go. I was like, okay, bye. And it turns out that my mom knew in that moment that I was in love with Mary and I didn't even know. I had no <laughs> idea, but my mom saw it coming like long before I did. That was smart. So she's like, let's nope on out of here. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, goodbye. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know, feel free not to answer any of these questions because I'm not trying to pry. Um, but it sounds like you two uh, consult each other while you're working on your songs. Yeah, every once in a while. You know, Mary just finished writing a book. So she hasn't been writing a whole lot of songs since we've been together. We've mostly been on the road. And then she finished this book. And she just started writing again. And a couple of days ago, she did ask me, what do you think about this? But I... Um, I love to ask her just because I learned so much from her from that workshop, obviously, about how to mm-hmm. condense things. And it's just like, I mean, in my personal opinion, she's one of the best songwriters in the world. So if she's like in the next room over, why wouldn't I ask her <laughs> about about songs? But we do have a lot of plans to co- we do have a plan to collaborate intentionally mm-hmm write together and sing together intentionally on a future project. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait. <laughs> I was going to ask, as I ask every other, everyone else on this podcast, is there a queer country artist you'd like to shout out? But maybe that answer is Mary, but no pressure if it's her oh. or it's someone else. Well, I've, <laughs> I've talked, I've talked about Mary enough. You know, you know who I love? I love <laughs> Jamie Wyatt and I'm so glad <laughs> that she's out and that she's doing her thing. I think she she was like one of the first friends I made when I lived in Nashville. And you guys know, cause you've talked to her, you know, like she is just one of the kindest, most thoughtful, authentic people I've ever met. And I just absolutely love what she's doing. I love how she's doing it. I love her style, just everything about Jamie Wyatt. I'm so proud of her and I just want to see her succeed. And I think she is. I think she's kicking a lot of ass right now. But I just really want the best for her because she is such a great person. That's my shout out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so sweet. Thank you. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to speak about before we sign off or anything you feel like you'd like to go into more detail about? I would just mm-hmm. want to say one of the saddest things about the pandemic, which isn't that sad, is that I am a I used to be a professional ski ball <laughs> player air quotes for people listening um i was in a ski ball league for a while and i love it and um and i'm a huge pinball fan so if i was gonna you, ask about that yes but I thought the moment had passed yes yeah, so if you know about pinball 
in your town, like wherever you are in the world, if there is a place to play pinball, please find me on social media and let me know about it because as soon as this thing is over, I am just gonna play pinball for a year straight. I just, I miss it so much. It's so not safe to do during the pandemic, I don't think. It seems like not a good idea. Um, So please tell me about your favorite pinball places. I love knowing and I love checking them out when I'm on the road. I was gonna ask, do you have one at home? Cause it's, you mentioned it helps you write. It, you know, it does. There's so many similarities like between guitars and pinball machines, you know, like you can play a machine in one venue and play it across the town and it's like a completely different machine. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed and I do when I get stuck writing, I just go play pinball for hours, but I don't have a machine at home, but I did email the guys from no quarter which is a local Mm -hmm. pinball place that is sadly not open right now in Nashville because of the tornado. They got hit by the the tornado before the virus. And he let me know about a pinball dealer that lives in Indiana and will drop off a machine at your house. So I am not wisely saving my tips from some of the live streams to go towards owning my own pinball machine, my first pinball machine. I think that's a really wise investment. Thank you so much. I'm being much. totally serious. <laughs> Thank you. so. I do call this, this is yeah. my, I call it the dyke den. You can't see, but over here, I mean, there are like the records and there's like all the merch over there. And, and you've got like a beautiful guitar right behind you. Thank you. Yeah. My dad built that guitar actually. Oh, wow. Isn't that sweet? And, um, but over here is like um, my N64 and my television and my green recliner where, where I watch my murder shows. That's the other thing. If you're a true crime <laughs> fan, please let me know about awesome true crime podcast or books anything true crime related i want to talk about it all the time (laughs) well you heard it here (laughs) first everybody if you have pinball and true crime and if you don't are you even a person uh just drop jamie a a line (laughs) we're gonna close things out with jamie's shout out to fellow texas queer country singer jamie wyatt who we interviewed a couple episodes back coming up next is rattlesnake girl from wyatt's album neon cross after that, we'll close it out with Jamie Harris's Forever from Red Rescue. Thank you, Gandhi. Don't walk behind me. I've seen people slip that way And if you try me, boot heels beside me I might have to make your day And I'm trying to keep the overhead low Desert blanket on the fire Wood. Mm-hmm.
This episode of Country Queer Spotlight has been brought to you by New West Records. Pick up a copy of the new Jamie Wyatt album, Neon Cross, available now at jamiewyatt.com. That's J-A-I-M-E-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. Well, cowpokes, we've reached the end of the trail for this episode. Thanks for listening to Country Queer Spotlight the podcast that introduces you to rising LGBTQ stars on the country scene. Head on over to countryqueer.com for more queer country content and merch. Rachel Colst has been your host and producer. For new music by Roots artists of all genders and orientations, listen to our weekly podcast, Adobe and Teardrops. Country Queer Spotlight is edited by Zach Tomlinson, executive produced by Country Queer's founder, Dale Geist. And our theme song, Ride Me Cowboy by Paisley Fields is courtesy of Don Giovanni Records. Ride me cowboy.